Hello and welcome to the Roots and Foundation podcast. I'm Jeremy Manuel. And I'm Nicole Carlin. Today we are working on the book of Deuteronomy. And that is the last book in the Torah, the first five books of, of our Bible. And where we kind of left off with last time with the book of Numbers is that Israel is now again right on the other side of the promised land. They're just about ready to get in. But here we have the book of Deuteronomy, and it's kind of this reminder for the new generation, because if you remember, they had to wander in the wilderness in Numbers until the previous generation, the generation that refused to go into the promised land, died out except for a few exceptions of Joshua, Caleb. And at the beginning, it was Moses, but then he too became that he wasn't going to enter into the, the land either. So that's kind of where we are. That's kind of the setup of where we are in Deuteronomy. You know, we're just outside of this, this promised land. And Moses is giving this kind of final speech to remind Israel, remind this new generation what it looks like to be in relationship with God that they've kind of agreed to before. And and thinking about the fact that this is a generation that did not see the Exodus. They have heard about it, but they haven't seen it. And Moses is preparing them by kind of going back over some of the laws, doing some expansion on some of the laws, but also looking at them and and offering them prophetic insights into the choices that they face as they move into the promised land. And so really, Deuteronomy is Moses's swan song. It's it's his sort of last speech at the retirement banquet before he steps down and enters into, into God's arms kind of thing. And one of the things that I've always thought was interesting is that Moses goes up on the mountain and he dies and no one is with him. So once again, as a as followers of Yahweh, we don't have a place to go and worship. The the tendency of human beings is if when a great leader passes, if we know where they died, we tend to want to go and venerate that place. But we don't have a final resting place for Moses at the end of Deuteronomy. Instead, he's basically gathered to the Lord, not miraculously, just privately. And so we uh, are, again, directed away from venerating a human leader and back towards respecting God. And so at the beginning of Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy is Greek, means second law, and that it's this repetition of those laws, like we said, that we found in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. And so the first 11 chapters is Moses's opening speech. And really, like with that, he kind of seems to be retelling really what went on in Numbers and kind of this idea of reminding Israel of their story, of what God has done for them, you know, how he took them out of Egypt, how they disobeyed him. Like there's this idea that both the good and the bad is remembered here in these first kind of 11 chapters of, of Deuteronomy. But kind of the, the central part of, part of this is to remember God. And the one part of this that's, that's really important is something that's called the Shema, which is named just for the first word of the, of the phrase in Hebrew, which is, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you too shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your might. We'll recognize this probably mostly from Jesus's response to what is the greatest commandment, that that's the first thing that, that Jesus kind of gives, that that's the greatest commandment, and that the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And so Shema is just simply the Hebrew word for listen. Which is that first word of this verse. And, and it's such a, a 
in many ways, it, when Jesus is asked, you know, what is the, the greatest? And he says, you know, all the law and prophets hang on this. Mm-hmm. And he also joins this to a verse back in it's in Leviticus, Leviticus, which is the loving unit, that, that idea that these are two ideas that were laid down by God to the Israelites at the very beginning of their covenant with him. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus brings them back to the fore and says, this idea of how you relate to God and how you relate to one another is the every law that's in the Torah is fundamentally work a working out of these two concepts mm-hmm. of loving God and loving one another, which is really powerful because in many ways we can sometimes as we go through the Torah can get overwhelmed by all the specificity of the law. We can be like, well, what about this purity law? And how do I do this? And what do we still observe? And what don't we observe? And it comes back to this idea that when we step back and look at the totality of the law, there's these undergirding principles that are uh, kind of encompassed in the Shema. And powerfully, that word Shema or listen implies a response, an obedience. There in the Hebrew, it it's not just like in English. And what were you saying about that, Jeremy, with hearing? Well, I was listen? saying like, I don't know, I think I, I have to say this to the kids sometimes. You may have heard me, you know, like you can kind of hear something, you can hear somebody say something and it can just kind of, you know, go out go in one ear and out the other, and there's no action on it. But you didn't listen to me. So it's this idea that listening kind of is connected to an action. You know, if you listen to somebody and they say, clean this up, and they don't do it, they really didn't listen. They maybe heard you, but they didn't listen. And so it's this idea that the Shema is about listening to God. It's not just hearing what God says, but actually doing what he says and putting it into practice. Um, so that's kind of the nuance of it. It's not just hearing. It's not just, okay, look at these words and and remember them and think happy thoughts. It's like, listen and put them in the practice into your life. Right. And that, I mean, and that's not an official distinction in no. the definition of the words. It's just this idea of trying to capture for us as Christians, the sense that because sometimes I'll hear the Shema being said as hear, O Israel, versus mm-hmm. listen. But in both cases, in the Hebrew, you couldn't do one without the other. The The sound vibrations couldn't tickle your eardrums without you then responding to it. And I think that as Christians, that's a an interesting point of meditation. It's a place for us to challenge and to pray and ask God, you know, maybe we've heard you. Maybe we're not listening to you. And I think oftentimes we look at our lives and we see there's a gap between what we know, which is another place where the Hebrew implies a doing. In the Hebrew, if you say no, you have to do. If you don't do, then you don't know. And I think we tend to box those into two things. Be like, well, intellectually, I am aware of, but I may not be doing. And the Shema reminds us, no, no. And and Deuteronomy reminds us that there's this idea that if we're listening to God, if we're hearing God, if we know what he says, then we will be putting it into practice in our life. And this is something that we'll probably touch back on as we go through other books of the Bible, because it this concept undergirds so much of the meta narrative or the big story of the Bible. Well, and I think that's so much of why Deuteronomy is this kind of Moses and God through Moses 
reminding Israel is like this is that constant idea of remember what God has done. I mean, you saw it even in, in Exodus and Leviticus that they're setting up these kind of parts in their calendar to remember what God has done, to remember to be thankful, to remember, and that kind of keeps coming up. And like I remember, it comes up. I think it comes up in Joshua, the next book of like, remember the Lord whenever you're in this land that's flowing with milk and honey. Don't just be there and be like, oh, you know what? We got this. It's good here. You know, we we are the ones who kind of accomplish this on our own. We don't need you anymore, Lord, like to, to not do that. This is kind of constant coming back to remember who God is and what he has done. And remember even the bad stuff that we've done when we've been unfaithful. Like that's part of the story that, that Moses reminds people. It's like it's not yeah. it's not that you guys have been great that God's here. God's the one who's doing this just of his own. Yeah. And that's what we see happening in chapters seven through 11 is this idea that Israel has this relationship with God, not because Israel is going to do it right, yeah. but be, and they're going to be faithful, but because God is faithful. And he, he you know, warns them, don't go down that road that led you to the golden calf again. And again, so there's this, this consistency of remembrance mm-hmm. and not forgetting at the beginning here of Deuteronomy in those first 11 chapters. And then chapters 12 through 26. Yeah, they, that's kind of more of a focus on the law. So it's a lot of the same kind of laws and issues that were dealt with kind of mostly Leviticus, but but some that show up in Exodus and can't remember if there's too much repetition from numbers here. But but it's this idea. It starts out with a lot of the kind of the laws of Israel's warship. And that's kind of from Deuteronomy 12 to 16a, um, just about like, how do you do the tabernacle? What offerings do you give? The idea of not having other gods, kind of reminder of purity laws and the various festivals and, and you know, things that they were supposed to do to remember God, just like what we had, had just been talking about. So, like, it's, it's, that's kind of where it starts off with is this kind of idea of remembering all the, all the laws of what it means, you know, what you've agreed to. I think, I can't remember which section it is. I think it's this first section that there's a repetition I can't remember, but there's a repetition of the Ten Commandments somewhere in this in this uh, area where I think it's in the first section um, mm-hmm. of of Deuteronomy. So like, there's this idea of remembering the law and what this looks like, and there's a lot of repetition here from previous. But again, it's to remind this new generation of what you've got what they're agreeing to, what they've gotten themselves into with this relationship with God. Well, and there's an intriguing thing, an assertion in this as well. So we're in this discussion of worship that mm-hmm. that that Moses is conveying to the community. And he includes, again, because I think there is some discussion of helping the poor in, in Leviticus and other sections mm-hmm. of the law, but it's included again here in this section on worship. And that's an important thing, especially in today's day and age, where there's sort of this, this Puritan work ethic kind of fusion with Christianity that people who are poor are deserve what they get, basically. So on one hand, there's many charitable outreaches by the church, but there's often, if you interact with various Christians, they have a very negative view of people who are financially impoverished. They they see them as suffering as a result of their own poor choices and are not deserving of, of help. But there's not a lot of discussion about why people are poor in scripture. It's simply a sense of responsibility to help those who are poor, um, recognizing that all of the blessings that come on somebody who isn't poor were gifts from God anyway. And so there isn't sort of a hierarchy of good guys and bad guys and 
this is the good deserving poor and this is the undeserving poor. It just simply says those who are poor and needy. It's the idea of like looking out for those around you rather than just simply trying to write people off. But I think there's also kind of another danger for ours is that we have kind of separated the spiritual dimension of things from the physical dimension. And there isn't that division right here. It's the idea that what you do physically for people, and Jesus reiterates this as like, if you give somebody a glass of water in my name, if you, you know, if you give somebody something to eat, if you visit the prisoner or the sick, you know, you've done it to me. Like this connection of doing physical things that have spiritual impact. And it's not this kind of cut and dry of like, well, just you might not have food now, but the, what's really important is not necessarily giving people food, but telling them about the Lord. And, and both are important. It's not this kind of divided way that that I've heard it spoken or, or in books. You know, the kind of like, oh, well, what's really important is is the spiritual. We don't need to care so much about the physical. And Leviticus or not Leviticus, Deuteronomy, right here shows they're one and the same, basically. Yeah, and it's intriguing connected. because this idea of helping the poor is equivalent to worshiping God. And I think a lot of times in this idea of where we separate things out. We don't think about maybe going to ECS and bagpacking for the food pantry as worship, mm. but yet it is. And, you know, making sure you have a couple McDonald's gift cards in your glove box. So if you see somebody panhandling on the side of the highway and you're at a red light, you could just open the window and say, here, you know, I hope this gives you, you know, help. You can wrap the gift card in a little message of love, or you can just hand it to them and say, you know, may God bless you. But just just the idea that there is there is this unity mm-hmm. in the life of the believer, the life of the follower of God, where acts of mercy are acts of worship. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because in this section, this, it's, it's an idea of a tithe for the poor that like every three years, I think it was, was like there's supposed to be this tithe collected for the poor. Whereas we think of tithe, we automatically think of, oh, it's just giving to the church. But no, that Israel had this tithe for meeting the needs of the poor, that that was part of their worship. It's kind of an interesting thing that I don't think we really do a good job of connecting and unifying very well. Like it's either one or the other. We kind of wind up falling off. Oh, we just need to help people eat and do mm-hmm. it's, it's separated from worship in its own way. Yeah. Or, you know, we, we focus really on the, Oh, we need to evangelize. We need to talk about God. We need to learn more about God and not worry so much about these physical needs. And, and whereas God is saying, no, both are very important and we need to be focused on both. So it's, it's kind of an interesting. Yeah. And that's a neat thing that that foundational understanding is right here in Deuteronomy mm-hmm. that we as Christians aren't this isn't something new. Like sometimes people be like, oh, you know, these social justice warriors, they've just kind of, it, no, no, this was from, I mean, even where God talks about gleaning and leaving the edges of your field with grain standing so that the poor would have a place to go. Even if they didn't own land, they didn't raise a crop, they still would have access to being able to, to get food. And I think this is an extent, this is a continuing extension of that idea of mercy, recognizing that Israel hasn't earned God's favor. They haven't earned God's love and grace it's because God is faithful and God is good. Yeah. And that we, just because people haven't earned it, doesn't mean that we shouldn't be gracious and good to them as well. Um, then it goes on in um, chapters, the second half of 16 through 18, where it's talking about leaders within Israel, judges and elders, the kings, the priests and the Levites, and the idea that these people are not above the law, mm-hmm. that they are under the authority of God's law. And if they break it, God is going to bring correction to them, primarily through the voice of the prophet, but then also sometimes through circumstances. Yeah. And that's one thing that's important, kind of like the prophets are set up even right here. They're not just this kind of, I think that culturally we have this view of the prophets as the future. Like they're basically like the the seer with the crystal ball kind of equivalent. And while they do do some of that, their primary directive is mainly to say, Israel, you are off 
course. You have forgotten God and his laws, and they're there to remind the people. So it's, again, this idea of going back to remembering. And the, the prophets are often more about trying to get Israel and their leaders to remember what they agreed to and to do them, or that the future bad things may happen or good things may happen, depending on which way you go. It's kind of this idea of the, they point out the consequences to the actions. Um, mm-hmm. And they do do some. I mean, there is ideas of, of a Messiah and things like that that get woven into the prophets. But the bulk of the prophets is this kind of language of you know, most of those messianic prophecies are kind of double layered prophecies yes. where they have an immediate fulfillment um, or a very um, soon fulfillment after they were spoken. But then there's this layer of and we're going to talk when we get to the end of the chapter about these things that are unresolved. Mm-hmm. There are unresolved elements to some of these prophecies because they just haven't happened. yet. God's peace doesn't reign over all the earth yet. Mm-hmm. So all those prophecies we know aren't fulfilled because we can look around and say, this is clearly not fulfilled. Yes. And I think that the one of the ways I heard this talked about that for me, because uh, I like little mnemonic devices and they help me understand, is that prophets both foretell, and that's a small percentage of what they do, and foretelling is looking at, ahead and saying this is what's coming. And then they are foretellers. And foretellers is the idea that they bring forth the truth, that they identify sin, that they remind the leaders of their shortcomings. And so the bulk of what they do is foretelling, bringing mm-hmm. forth the truth. And that little bit of what they do is foretelling because God gives them insight. And that was always the the final test of the uh, a true prophet was that the what they brought forth jived with God's previously mm-hmm. spoken law. And that if they did foretell what they foretold in the immediate situation, it, it came to pass. Yeah. And just something because it came up on Sunday morning, whenever we talked about prophets, is that most of the prophets that you read about in the Bible that we actually have as actual prophets were not very popular in their times. Um, they, they tended to speak against the power and uh, the authorities of the day because they weren't doing what God had wanted. And as you can imagine, that didn't go over well. Like the people with the power were like, well, who cares? And they had false prophets that were around them who were just basically ones who said, oh, we're prophets, but we agree with everything that the power is doing. And so these actual prophets, you know, like Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Elijah and Elisha, which don't have their own books, but you'll see them as narrative more later, they, that they were never very cozy with the power structures of the day. They, they spoke truth and brought up the shortcomings of those power and those people in power. And that made them very unpopular. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because if you think about prophets, like in many ways, while Moses was primarily a priest of the people, there was prophetic acts that he did. And Egypt wasn't really happy with his prophetic voice. His own people were. His right? own people were not happy with that. And then you think about like all the way to John the Baptist. Mm-hmm as a prophet and how he was beheaded by the powers that be because he was speaking truth that was uncomfortable and not what they wanted to hear. Um, and then Jesus, of course, is the ultimate prophet. Yeah. Um, so yeah, being a prophet is not, <laughs> it's uh, clearly why when kids list things they want to be when they grow up, prophet doesn't often make it on the list. Yeah. It's not one of those cozy no. jobs where you get lots of vacation time and no. well status and all that good stuff. Yeah. And then our last couple of chapters in the center section of um, chapters 19 through 26, it focuses on civil law and social justice, things like legal system and marriage and family business. And again, the ritual purity of the entire nation. And that's the civil law. And then social justice is focusing on how Israel, again, here we are again, how Israel should care for the poor, the widows, orphans, and foreigners. Understanding that poor widows, orphans, and foreigners are categorically brought up again and again in the life of Israel and for God's people because 
these represented categories of people who did not have power over their own destiny. The poor were not able to care for themselves for whatever reason. Widows as women without male kind of protection in a patriarchal society had no way to earn money, were often victimized and could be cheated and they didn't have anyone to kind of stand up for them. Orphans, obviously, while children on one hand were valued, on the other hand, children in the first century, uh, well, children in the ancient world were often exploited or at just grave risk. Without, Especially if you had no connection with parents and family line right. and things like that. But. And then strangers, foreigners in your country, the idea that they didn't have the rights of citizenship and that they were at risk as a result of that. And the recognition that because Israel had been foreigners in Egypt, they were to never forget that they had this responsibility to be gracious, merciful, kind, and just to the stranger among them. Um, and so that sort of wraps up that middle section of Deuteronomy where Moses is talking about these laws. And there's this important idea of how do we approach these laws now? Yeah. And that's, and that's a big question. And the kind of, I used to, I kind of made up these kind of questions, but it kind of came from the Bible project. They kind of gave some helpful hints. And one of their first kind of point was the idea that these laws aren't for today. We aren't supposed to be kind of trying to lobby our government to enact the exact replication of the laws as we see them in Deuteronomy or Leviticus. Like, that's not our point. They, these were for Israel with their covenant with God. Not to say that some of them aren't still good, that some of them aren't still applicable in their own way, but that's not the point. The point isn't for us to start trying to get our constitution to look like the covenant with, with the and Israel especially with God. The, the ones that are specific to the nation of Israel, yes. such as the purity laws, mm -hmm. the ritual laws, the festivals— all of those observances. Yeah. And we see that discussion when we finally get to the New Testament and into Acts and into the letters of Paul, the Pauline and other uh, non-Pauline letters. We're going to see the church grappling with what parts of this continue forward. And the church, that, that gets resolved. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes today it ends up, there's been some discussions that murky the waters. But we're not held to the purity laws. We don't have to worry about mixed fiber clothing or eating non-kosher foods or trying to institute marriage laws specifically based on the legal system laid out here, that this was for the nation of Israel. Yes, that is basically it's the idea that Israel's relationship with God and, and their status of a nation with God is very different than United States, no matter whether we think that it was a Christian nation to start out with or whether we don't, that it's a different thing. Like it was with freedom of religion, which meant freedom for anybody to do whatever religion that they wanted to. And that's different than what Israel would have had. We aren't supposed to kind of reenact the no other gods before me for our country like that. Yeah, that that's not a legal responsibility. That's as Christians, what we believe and what we hold to in our relationship with God, but not necessarily what we feel like as Americans, we have to. Well, and the beauty is for us today, what, what, what has changed profoundly is that with the coming of Christ and the fulfillment of the covenant to Abraham, that all nations would be blessed through Israel, <laughs> it ceases to be a nationalistic religion. <laughs> uh, prior to the coming of Christ, uh, the followers of Yahweh were of the nation of Israel. And if you wanted to be a follower of Yahweh, you basically had to bind yourself to the nation of Israel. You had to become in some format, even if you were originally a foreigner, you went through a process to bind yourself to Israel and become one with the nation of Israel. With the coming of Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free male nor female. These dividing walls are set aside. And now the idea, and we see this visualized in Revelations chapter 7, that every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be represented before the throne of God. And so 
the followers of Yahweh are now of every nationality and Christ is our king and we operate under the legality of whichever nation we occupy, but our ultimate allegiance is to Christ. And so it creates this interesting ongoing discussion about how we approach legality as Christians, civil legality, because even here in Deuteronomy, they separate the civil laws from the spiritual, like the, the worship laws and whatnot for the sake of clarity and how things were enforced and enacted. So today we aren't under the, the, we don't have to offer sacrifices. Christ's sacrifice fulfilled that. There is no tabernacle or even temple, you know, like the, no. that's those things was, wouldn't apply to us today. Christ's death for us makes us pure in the sight of God. And so we aren't bound by the purity laws because that part of the covenant was fulfilled. Yeah. But interestingly, the covenant parts that haven't been completed is how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the social justice laws about being kind to the poor and caring for widows, orphans and strangers, that stuff still stands because that's about loving your neighbor mm-hmm. as yourself, which Jesus walks out in the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Yeah. And then the second principle is this idea of there's a tendency. I mean, we're what, 3000 years removed from when this would have when these laws would have been implemented. And so we have a tendency of like wanting to compare our modern laws to these laws from 3000 years ago. And that's not really the best way to go about this. It's more that to compare laws, you've got to compare to those around where Israel was and compare the laws of those nations that were contemporaries to the laws of Israel to see whether they were really, you know, better or worse, that those would be the accurate comparisons, not us. I mean, even the idea of being post-Christ, that would probably make a huge difference. And so, you know, so it's just the idea of comparing. Because sometimes people get critical. They, yeah. they look at these laws that are outlined in Deuteronomy and they might say, wow, these are harsh or these penalties are, I don't understand, or God seems so bloodthirsty or why is it? And it's like, no, no, no. When we make that comparison to say the code of Hammurabi or the Assyrian laws or the code of Ernamu and other societies that were contemporaneous, what you realize is, is the laws laid out by Yahweh were comprehensible to the people that he presented them to, but they were also stretching the boundaries of justice, stretching the boundaries of graciousness, of mercy, um, and really setting a standard unlike a lot of these other codes. And all of them reiterated the idea of kind of the the vision we see in Genesis, which is God is king and creator, and that these people, he's he's created this covenant with them for a purpose. And the laws reflect that and how he, what he asks of them. And so we do, we do want to do justice to looking at this and not make a false comparison to modern legal standards, which interestingly are heavily, heavily influenced by these very laws. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like trying to define a word by the word kind of to thing. To some degree, yeah. Um, and then finally... is this idea of looking at the underlying principle, which admittedly looking at some of them, it may be harder to figure out. I mean, like in some ways, these, these kind of ideas of ways to help us look at, they don't solve every problem. They don't make every law just, oh, it's just, it's just so easy and you don't have to wrestle with this at all. But they're just some principles that can help us to kind of grapple with it a little bit because like some of the principles underneath them we could agree with you know like we could agree with no adultery or no cheating on one spouse or we could agree with no murder we may not agree with the punishments and the the way things are laid out and these ancient legal codes but the underlying principle murder is still bad cheating is still bad you know like there's things that we can agree with even though like it's a very different 
setting that these laws are kind of being laid out in. And often the laws that we find most difficult to kind of discern are the ones that fall in the category of the purity laws, the sacrificial laws, and the ritual the ritual calendar. A lot of those laws are often the ones that were kind of like, Wait, what? Like the mold laws and the skin lesion regulations and those sorts of things. But, but th- there's this idea that underneath of those, m- often you can kind of discern, though again, as Jeremy said, not always. Sometimes we're left with sort of a thing of saying, okay, uh, we're not ancient, ancient Israel. And it's not clear to us yeah. what God was looking for. What, the the gift that we have is we do have the New Testament and the the writings of the early church fathers where they, in essence, w- grappled with that exact question and came to some conclusions um, through the power of the Holy Spirit on that. And I think a good reminder is what we mentioned in the book of, I can't remember whether we did it with Exodus or Le- Leviticus, but the idea that these purity laws weren't necessarily like sin or evil or they were just things that continually were to remind, again, that idea of remembering Israel of like how hard it was to be pure, to be able to actually be in relationship with God, that that's what these were mostly there for. They weren't saying, oh, well, blended fabric, that's evil, that's terrible, you're so horrible for wearing them. It was this idea of no, 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 like that that's just pure like ritual purity. Like it's not about like, oh, you did sin. It's this idea of relating with God and God being the central aspect of Israelite and Life. sin separating us from God yeah. and wanting to be aware of it, repent of it, and then come back. Yeah. Um, as opposed to being aware of it and then that's it. <laughs> oh, it just didn't mean with like the purity laws. It's not even like the idea of sinning. It's the idea of like human life is just messy, even when we're not sinning all over the place. The idea of fluids and, you know, lesions and moss and, you know, like that the world's just kind of messy and that those kind of messy things can kind of hinder our relationship with him. And so it's that idea of kind of that there is sin, but that these purity laws aren't necessarily dealing with that. It's this kind of, it's, it's just kind of a weird concept to us, you know, right. this idea of like, oh, well, but it's the idea of kind of like washing your hands before eating. I was say, we do have things like that, but we, yeah, like the idea that the FDA exists to make sure that our food is unadulterated, that we have adopted a, a very different set of codes, not based on spiritual purity, but just based on purity of our food and drugs. I mean, that's the, the and food and schools drug. buy stock in, you know, hand sanitizer, you know, basically yeah. with like buying cartloads of those to do right. with kids, you know, so there's, there's those kind of things that we have, but they're, that they're kind of purity law ish, right. um, but they're more in the realms of politeness and, and what's proper than they are in our to, culture. In our culture yes. I think that's probably a really great, I mean, if you, you deliberately sneeze over the sneeze guard <laughs> at the salad bar, you know, you're not going to go to prison, but that's just not... They might send you outside the restaurant. <laughs> they might, they might, they might, they might cast you out um, for that kind of behavior. And so oh. it sometimes might be helpful for us uh, to think about it in that light. Yeah. So that brings us to chapters 27 through 34. Which finishes out the book of Deuteronomy. And it's basically this Moses kind of this final reminder to the people of there's two paths you can go. You can listen and obey God And experience blessing and peace and tranquility and wholeness in this land that God is going to be giving them. Or they can continue the way they've been going with rebellion against God, turning away from him, walking away from him. And the result's going to be devastation and ultimately exile. They're going to be cast out, maybe not of the restaurant, but of the land that they're now going to be given here just in a short while. So that's kind of the way that Moses ends it is this this choose you're which way you're going to go. Are you going to obey or are you going to disobey God? And unfortunately, Moses kind of predicts 
whether he's been given special revelation from God or whether he's just been with these people long enough and he knows kind of the way things are going to go, he knows that they are going to rebel against God and that they will eventually wind up in exile at some point down the line. But on the positive side, Moses does also predict that one day God will circumcise the heart of, of Israel, for all we know at this point, but really the whole world, and that we'll be able to follow God. And we see this kind of reiterated in some of the prophets, particularly Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel in Ezekiel 36. That Well, it's this interesting thing, because this is one of those like churchies kind of things we talk about where the yes. circumcision of the heart and you're like, wait, what? Yes. And the idea that circumcision was this outward symbol for the men in Israel to show that they were following God. And it, again, set them apart from the surrounding nations. And so this was part of them being unique and identified as God's people. And so this idea of circumcision of the heart, obviously it's not a surgical procedure. Um, It's this idea of marking or transforming the heart. And and, and I believe Ezekiel uses the images of uh, hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, Mm -hmm. which may be more helpful for us to think about the idea that when we're hard-hearted, like you can see how Israel behaved. And when you go through numbers and think about how many times God is providing and Israel is like, oh, I don't like this. I want to go back and whatnot. That that's hard heartedness, yeah, which talks about with Pharaoh, you know, being hard hearted and yes. towards God. So it's this kind of imagery there. Right. And and so bringing that into our own lives and thinking about this idea that the heart of flesh is a heart that can respond to God's direction, a heart that is willing to be tender enough to hear the Holy Spirit and repent of sinful behaviors, or even just be aware that God is speaking to you. And that that's this idea that Moses is saying, someday, I've watched you people. (laughs) I've watched, you know, myself. And we've all, we, we just aren't listening. We aren't remembering. We aren't obeying. But someday God's going to do something amazing. And it's going to be this transformation, which they talk about as circumcision of the heart, which is this movement from a heart of stone to a heart of, of flesh. And, you know, and then Christ, you know, says like, when I ascend, you will receive the counselor of the Holy spirit. And that ability to have God speaking to us all the time is just an amazing thing. It makes me think about one of the, sometimes it's hard when you have a gift available all the time, you don't appreciate it. And I forget who it was who said that, for example, that people should only be allowed to view the stars once every thousand years because the sight of the star filled sky is so wondrous but we're so blasé about it. You know, we don't even want to go out and look. We're like, ah, it's stars. It's dark. I don't want to go outside. And his idea was that this was such a, because we're just so quick to forget. We're so quick to be dulled to wonder and to be unappreciative. It's this sort of idea of like, we've kind of become dulled to the fact that this prophecy that Moses puts in here, that someday God's going to do something amazing so that people can respond to God as they go, mm-hmm. instead of sort of having to have all this intermediate process, all these structures, the temple, the sacrifices, the ritual calendar, that instead we'll walk with God, we'll hear God, our hearts will be tender and responsive. So that's an interesting, he, he puts this out, but this isn't something that's going to be even partially fulfilled until the coming of Christ. Christ. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, so that's Deuteronomy, that's kind of Moses gives these last warnings. He kind of goes up to the mountainside and passes away. And that's where Deuteronomy leaves us, that there's not really anything too much beyond that. And so it leaves, as I said, kind of at the beginning, this is the final book of what is classified as the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books. That tends to be how they're, they're grouped. 
But considering it's kind of this end of this grouping, there are so many pieces of the story that are just kind of left. It's like the end of a season, you know, (laughs) like where they have those storylines where like it's a show and they're not going to resolve everything. They leave that cliffhanger so that whenever you get to the next season, you're 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 looking forward to it. Yes. And so there's all these unresolved things. There's just like on the basic story that we've been going like, will Israel actually make it into the promised land? Sure, they've won some battles already here at the end of numbers and whatever, but. Are they actually going to cross over the Jordan and take the actual promised land? Will this new generation follow God any better than their parents did? Or are they going to fail just as hard? So those are like two that are just like the continuation of the story. Like what's going to happen? But Then you have this yeah. question kind of in Genesis 3, where if you remember back when, when Adam and Eve um, stumbled and were evicted from the garden, God talked about this idea that the descendant of the woman would defeat evil. And that's back in Genesis 3, but it still hasn't happened yet. So that's there's another thread of the story. Where, where's What's going to happen with that? Or in Genesis 12, where God promises to bless um, the entire world through Abraham's family, that hasn't come to fulfillment yet. We're still talking about a tiny nation in the corner of, of a busy and big world, and they're not necessarily at this moment affecting the entirety of the the world yet. Or this idea of like, how can God be reconciled, this holy God be reconciled to his rebellious people that he's been kind of of the question of all of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and all these rules to try to get God to be able to relate with humans. Like, are they going to ever kind of make it? And then, of course, the final question, which we've talked about, which is how is God going to do this incredible transformation of people's hearts? How is he going to circumcise them? How are they going to move from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh? That's brought up here in Deuteronomy 30. And so to be continued. Yeah, all these all these threads will hopefully be be answered eventually. And so that is what we have for Deuteronomy. And next week, we'll see if any of those questions get answered or whether we just get more questions with the book of Joshua. And we may um, actually next we may do a session on biblical order of books and the and the idea of the 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 Torah and the idea of the Tanakh, which yeah. is a Hebrew word, or we may just jump right into Joshua. So another cliffhanger you'll have to tune in and find out. Yes, because we don't even know what we're we don't do. know yet. <laughs> so so we hope you enjoyed it, and we will see you next time with whatever topic we wind up thinking that we should cover.